Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series in the book of Habakkuk, and the series called God and the Problem of Evil. So let's turn to Habakkuk 3, verses 14 to 17, as we talk about Christian confidence. Have you ever wondered why there are passages in the Bible in which we are told to forgive our enemies and there are others in which we are told to wait patiently for the utter destruction of our enemies? See, on the one hand, Jesus tells us to hunger and thirst after righteousness, and yet, on the other hand, he tells us to forgive our enemies. And when we forgive, are we then giving up on justice? And when we hunger for justice, can we actually then forgive? You know, I raise this issue because of the description of God found in Habakkuk chapter 3. Now, this is a chapter that describes God as a mighty warrior in which Habakkuk recounts how God destroyed the enemies of Israel and even recounts the utter defeat of Egypt as Israel was delivered from slavery. Verse 12 describes God as marching through the earth in fury and threshing the nations in anger. This is not the God of human speculation. Rather, this is the altogether terrifying God who actually exists. But verse 13 recounts God going forth for the salvation of his people while he crushes the house of the wicked. What are we to make of this? Are we cheer and clap as God destroys the nations? And doesn't that sound vindictive and lacking in mercy? And just in case you're of the mindset that says, oh, you know, that's, that's what God did in the Old Testament, and now we're in this different ethic in the New Testament, well, then think again. 2 Peter chapter 2 is a chapter that's a polemic against false teachers. And verse 9 says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Now, why do you think that Peter says that, if not that you should not be like them and that you should rejoice that their day is coming? And then when Peter describes these false teachers, listen to what he calls them. They're like irrational animals, he says, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. He calls them accursed children and says that for them, the gloom of utter darkness is reserved. That doesn't sound like gentle language at all. Indeed, Jesus himself speaks just that way in the book of Revelation. When he speaks to the church in Philadelphia, he says to those who are persecuting his church there, he says, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. So you get a sense of a day when the tables are turned and the enemies of these Christians come cowering and bowing at their feet in abject fear. Indeed, in Revelation 2, verse 26, Jesus says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and when earthen pots are broken in pieces. See, Jesus is promising the complete triumph of his people over all who do evil to them today. One day, he says, the tables are going to be turned, and those who have harmed you will be broken to pieces by you. How do we understand that? Was it not Jesus himself who, while he hung on the cross, prayed for those who were nailing him there, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And didn't Jesus teach us, his followers, to forgive our enemies and to do good to those who spitefully use us? See, I don't know if you've ever wondered how it's possible, on the one hand, to rub one's hands in glee over the destruction of the enemies, and on the other hand, to genuinely be praying for their salvation and waiting for the mercy of God on those who do evil. See, I think most Christians today have gone in one of two directions. You know, I call one group the mercy Christians and the other the justice Christians. 
You know, I've read some of the church martyrs, a good many of them prayed for their persecutors while they were dying. But some, do you know, actually reminded their persecutors that one day the tables are going to be turned. You know, is that really what Christ would want of his martyrs? The early church said no. You know, is one group a part of the mercy group and the other a part of the justice group? Or is it really possible in some way to be part of both? I think Paul's words in Romans 12, 19 speaks directly to that issue. There he said, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If I understand Paul rightly here, he argues that the reason we can let personal wrongs go without exacting revenge is because we're convinced that justice lies in the hands of God and that this is the best place for it for our just God. In the end, he will avenge. We will not. And I do think that this is part of the answer. Imagine, if you will, a perfect world where justice always gets done perfectly every single time. You're driving down the road following the speed limit. Someone cuts you off. They're going twice the posted speed limit. You know, in a perfect world, he's stopped around the next corner every time, and he's ticketed. You know, in such a world, your first reaction to injustice would not be to shake your fist and fly into road rage, but instead, in our perfect imagined world, you would have to say, wow, that guy's really going to get a really big fine. Woe to him. I hope he finds mercy. Well, we do live in such a world, and I don't mean a world where where traffic tickets are always perfectly handed out, but we live in a world where justice will be perfect. In the end, vengeance belongs to the Lord, and he will render to each man exactly in accordance to what he has done. Hebrews 10.31, after affirming that vengeance belongs to the Lord, the passage then goes on to say, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so, given that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, we as Christians do well to remember that we too would fall under judgment were it not for the atoning death of Christ on our behalf. And if we who deserve eternal damnation find that Christ has suffered for us, we do so well when we remember our crimes against God and we learn from those crimes to respond in grace to others as God has responded to us. So we remember those who have committed crimes against us, and our impulse is grace. For we know there is for every human being either a repentance from evil and a throwing of oneself on the mercy of God found in the cross of his Son. Or there is for every human being eternal vindication of the holiness of God in the eternal damnation of all who offend divine righteousness. Think of that. All of us are on the way to either mercy in Christ or divine judgment and damnation. You know, as we're coming to the end of the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is putting it together now. Judah and Jerusalem has abandoned the Lord and refuses to repent, and therefore God is sending the Babylonians to destroy them. That's justice. That's God vindicating his holiness. That's God's nature. But Babylon, the tool of God's anger, also refuses to acknowledge God, and Babylon's own crimes against heaven far surpass that of Israel, and so Babylon herself will be condemned. Woe to Babylon! She also will face the justice of God. But since God's justice is perfect, and absolutely no human being can avoid it, because these matters are certain, Habakkuk has a request of God. God, he prays, reveal your splendor, and as you do in wrath, remember mercy. And then in chapter 3, Habakkuk remembers God's splendor revealed when God visited his people at Mount Sinai and how God had destroyed the Egyptians at the Red Sea. 
And now, picking up from that theme, I'm reading now from Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors. You came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. You know, Habakkuk is thinking back to the incident of the Red Sea. God put a pillar of fire between the Egyptian military and the people of Israel. And then God parted the Red Sea, and with a pillar of fire preventing the Egyptians from pursuing Israel, Israel passes through the Red Sea. But then suddenly the pillar of fire dissipates, and and the Egyptian military attempts to seize its opportunity. And in a daring move, they mount their chariots, and with a, a cry of warfare, they charge after Israel. And they would have overtaken them, but the mud at the bottom of the Red Sea was so thick that their chariot wheels were stuck, and they were working their horses as hard as they could to make it through. But then in in poetic language, Habakkuk sees God entering into the Red Sea with his own horses. But the horses of God were the surging of the mighty waters of the Red Sea as waves of ocean surge in on the Egyptians and, and drown the finest military of the earth at that time period in history. As Habakkuk considers this, he knows the significance of what has happened. In his poetic words, he says, you pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors. The power of the Egyptian military was turned now upon them. And that was the reason for the joy of Israel. That's why they danced on the shores of the Red Sea. God had acted in judgment upon their foes, and they were free. Now, that was all history, but that history was so instructive. At the time of Habakkuk, the new oppressor of Judah was the Babylonians now. But God hadn't changed either in his power nor in his covenant with the children of Abraham. And yet the judgment that Israel had witnessed against her enemies was now about to fall on them. And so we have a confluence of factors here. We have Israel's enemies, but we have Israel herself becoming an enemy of God. And how does this all work out to our theme about forgiveness? Well, we're going to see about that. The world we live in is a fallen one. Bad things are happening all around us, but why? How could a God who loves us allow evil to exist in the world? These are the questions that Dr. John Newfeld answers in his series, God and the Problem of Evil. It's become popular for people to say that they're angry at God, but have we stopped to think about how God feels about us? What happens when you shake your fist at God when life gets hard? When we are in seasons of despair, what should our response to our Creator be? God will always act in a way that's consistent with His character, not with culture. Join us every day for more Bible teaching you can trust from Back to the Bible Canada. And if you'd like to support the ministry or receive more information about all the free resources available, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. In Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk has recalled that God is a mighty warrior and that God works in perfect justice. But he's also remembered God's mercy, and for that reason, he knows that whatever suffering there may be in the immediate, God's justice will be done. And so we come to Habakkuk 3 verse 16. Habakkuk says, I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. 
Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And that's it. Habakkuk says, when the Babylonians destroy us, I will not be seething with resentment, allowing hatred for the Babylonians to consume me. Rather, I will wait quietly for God's justice to work its way out, even among the Babylonians. But before we get to that conclusion, let's consider Habakkuk's immediate response to the invasion to come. First, he says that his body begins to tremble. Then he says his lips quiver. The actual Hebrew word seems to indicate that the trembling of his lips is so violent now that he's unable to speak. So you get a sense of him stuttering. He's saying, uh, 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 and, then, and then he can't get a single word out of his mouth. The idea of rottenness in his bones is figurative. It means that the strongest part of his body is now as weak as it could possibly be. His legs are now trembling, and at best he is able to stumble forward, but most likely he falls. Habakkuk's description of himself is that he's so frightened right now. If he had tried to control himself and somehow collect his own dignity, he's just unable to do that. But why is he so terrified? Is it that the Babylonian invasion frightens him so? Well, I think not. Remember that he's gone to the watchpost of the city. He waits for God to answer his complaint. And in the ensuing vision of God, he's overwhelmed with ineffable glory. He sees the glory of God. And in a real way, Habakkuk's reaction to God fits the biblical model perfectly. Do you remember Isaiah the prophet's vision of God in the temple? In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says that he saw the Lord. And, and what's his response? He says, woe is me. For I'm lost from a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. And this is the experience of standing before holiness. John in Revelation sees the glorified Jesus, and what does he say? He says, I fell at his feet as though dead. I need to stop here for a moment because I can't help myself, but I think an application is in order. I often hear contemporary Christians saying, you know, God told me, and then they fill in the blank. And there are some people who make a habit of constantly saying, God showed me. See, I once attended a church that was going through a church split. They were in terrible fights. And you know that both sides were citing God as their justification. God told me. You know, in truth, I know that God can at any point in time reveal himself to someone and speak to them. But when it's a real revelation, that revelation would be so overwhelming. That revelation itself would become the defining moment in a person's life. It wouldn't just be another, well, God showed me this, and I soon forget about that. See, the kind of talk of simply having one revelation after another and forgetting, that's the talk of a person who knows nothing about God. It's quite common in our day for some people to talk about listening prayer as if when a thought arises in our mind, we assume it must be God speaking. See, in this way, I'm sure that we have begun to worship idols, not the God who so terrifies us that we can't speak or that we can't stand upright. And that's why the Bible is such a blessing to God's people. We are called upon to read God's Word as they stand in written form. We examine the text of God's Word without being torn apart limb from limb. And in the process of this, we are learning who the great God is. I would urge God's people to stop the abusing of the sacred name and stop constantly saying, God showed me. Would it not be better for us to study Scripture and content ourselves in the genuine revelation that God has already given us? And so as we come to the end of Habakkuk, we find that Habakkuk has been encountered by holiness. 
He now understands that God never allows evil to win. And he also understands that whenever God uses evil to overcome evil, that all evil in the end will be destroyed by him, him who is holy. And so with his body trembling and his lips unable to produce a comprehensible sound and his legs collapsing beneath him, Habakkuk resolves something in his heart. He will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon people who will invade Israel. Even though the Babylonians will destroy Jerusalem and burn its temple and and slaughter many of its people in the streets and, and deport whoever is left into captivity, Habakkuk will not seethe with resentment. Instead, he will wait quietly for God to act in justice. That brings us full circle. You remember we began by asking the question of, of whether we are to forgive our enemies or whether we should wait expectantly for God's justice to fall and ready to clap our hands in defiant joy at their destruction. Well, as we all know, there's something wonderfully satisfying about the thought of the destruction of Babylon. Indeed, in the end of Revelation, God's people are called upon to celebrate her demise. But would you also notice that that's not Habakkuk's response at this point in time? His response is fear and it's quietness in the presence of a God who is perfectly just. My dear Christian friend, has someone wronged you? Are you thinking within your heart, why isn't God doing something after all? They're getting away with it. Might I suggest to you that the first answer to your dilemma is to gaze on the fierce holiness of God, the God, the mighty warrior, and be overwhelmed by his justice and by his wrath. And then in the end, never doubt the outcome of matters. Every single human being will either come to the point of repentance or to the point of damnation. That's the nature of the universe, for the universe is God's universe after all. And then given the nature of God, might I ask you that you view your inclusion among the people of God in a new light. Be overwhelmed at how much wrath has been poured onto Jesus on the cross for your sake. Be overwhelmed that your sins against God are so much greater than the sins that have been perpetrated against you. Imagine that he who threshes the nations in his wrath includes you also as an object of wrath until Jesus stood in your place and bore wrath on your behalf. And so you really can forgive your enemies for this world is ruled by a just God. And given that reality, let me commend two important attitudes to all the people of God. First, Continue to have at all times an attitude before God of holy fear and reverence. Yeah, I know, I know. First John tells us that perfect love casts out all fear. But do you also know the context of that passage? The fear that John speaks about is the fear of punishment. That is to say that we fear that Christ's death does not atone for our sins. That kind of fear that Christ's death won't atone for us and that we might yet die for our own sins, that's forever banished when we have come to trust in Christ. But the kind of fear that knows the splendor of holiness must never be taken from the child of God. Know that it is a staggering grace that invites us to enter into his presence with boldness. But also know that when we approach the one and only true God, that we are approaching God after all. Have an attitude of reverent fear. And second, make silence and trust your resting place. Don't become anxious about evil. Don't fret. Because evildoers have their one hour. Become quiet. Reflect on the plan and the promises of God. And out of that comes this great sense of confidence. Believers neither cower before their enemies, nor do they breathe out resentments and threats. 
Ours is a quiet confidence, not in ourselves, but in the glory of God. See, when the Bible tells the story of Babylon, we're reminded of of many things. We remember her cruelty, but we also remember that when Nebuchadnezzar refused to repent, he was struck with madness until he acknowledged that the Most High ruled even over him and Babylon. We remember Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace, and we remember again that even in Babylon, God is never silent. And so the people who tremble before God just stop trembling before any other thing. Have confidence. We must remember that evildoers do not reign. God reigns. And even if evildoers should triumph for but an hour, God is using their evil for his purposes, that they are merely increasing their debt load before the one who rules all things visits them. And so, child of God, learn to be confident in your God. Trust in the Lord and do not fear evil. Have no hesitation to forgive your enemies with an open hand, for why should you allow the root of bitterness to grow within you? Rejoice, for your God, the righteous one, rules, and therefore act as God would act, and pray for mercy to those who would persecute you. Heavenly Father, I pray, O Lord God, may the lessons of your glory and of your nature change the way we act towards others. In Christ's name we pray, amen. John, the idea of a a warrior God, this isn't something that settles well with a lot of people in our culture today. It seems seems too violent, too too warlike. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think that there are people that would also argue that it's people who drink deeply of this theology that actually go to war themselves. And, uh, and so they begin to view people in black and white terms and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I've heard all the arguments for that. But I, what I've tried to do in, in, this, in this session, Ben, is, is to give a sense that this, this sure knowledge in the righteousness of God allows us to be confident in his righteousness, not in ours. But I would also say it gives us this deep sense of peace that vengeance does belong to the Lord. It truly does belong there. I do think there are a lot of people when when they finally lash out in anger because they've you know they've kept stuff inside long enough they're of the opinion that so and so is getting away with stuff and that's what leads to you know anger in in all sorts of different situations but in truth nobody gets away with anything uh, God is the perfect judge and will hold all of us before his throne in judgment so uh, that's why it's so important to talk about the language of mercy and grace and forgiveness Thanks so much for sharing with us today, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. It doesn't matter where you live. The secular culture around the globe has taken its hold in our communities. It's clear that as Christians, we can't isolate ourselves from the culture around us. We need to be set apart, but how can we do that? If Christians are called to do more than just condemn what is wrong, how do we do it? There's a culture that exists today that is destructive and harmful. So how can we live as an alternative to it? How can we truly live out the alternative lifestyle that God has called us to live? Well, the first step is to open the Bible and see what God's Word has to say. In Dr. Newfeld's series, An Alternative Lifestyle, Dr. John does just that by diving into the book of Philemon. And we're excited to offer the series to you on CD as our gift. To get your copy of An Alternative Lifestyle, all you need to do is visit us at backtothebible.ca 
or call us at 1-800-663-2425.